Section 5 of Mornings at Bow Street by John White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Late Hours and Oysters Two gentlemen of pretty considerable respectability, one tall and the other short, were charged with having assaulted the watch, and no fewer than five ancient and quiet watchmen appeared to testify against them. Dennis Mack was the first in order. He said he found the two gentlemen at the door of the oyster shop in New Street, Covent Garden, between one and two o'clock in the morning, kicking up a great row with a hackery coach and two ladies. He told them to go home to bed, and not be making such a bother as all that, when the short one laid hold of his staff, and tried to twist it out of his hand, whereupon he sprung his rattle for assistance. Thomas Robinson was the next. He was a smart, upright, corporal-trim-like sort of a watchman, and his discourse was somewhat stuffed with epithets of war. He heard the rattle-call of his comrade, and advanced to his relief. He made his approaches with caution in order to reconnoitre the party. Having so done, he challenged the offenders to surrender, and received the point-blank charge of a fist in his belly, saving his worship's presence. "'What are you?' asked the magistrate, struck by the novelty of his phraseology. "'I have been a soldier, Your Honor,' he replied. "'But since I was discharged from the army, I have endeavored to fulfill the part of a cobbler.' Patrick Donahue, a six-foot emerald islander, with an astonishing perpendicular expansion of countenance, was the third in order. He heard the hubbubu as he was paceably walking his bait and went right on end to larn the rights of it. And the biggest of the two, without saying, By your lave, took him a mighty decent stroke over the jaws. Two other watchmen followed, but as they said, they only came in at the tail of the row, and therefore they did not see the beginning of it. However, they bore testimony to the extreme repugnance of the gentleman to go to the watch-house. The gentlemen were now called upon for their defense, and the short one undertook the task of making it. It appeared that he and his tall friend were out so late because they were eating oysters. Consequently, the oysters were solely to blame, as far as late hours were concerned. Then, as they were coming out of the oyster shop, they found two ladies, who also had been upstairs eating oysters, sitting in a hackney couch at the door. There was nothing extraordinary about this, but somehow or other the coachman had got it into his head that these two unlucky gentlemen had ordered the coach for the use of the ladies, then comfortably sitting therein, and, of course, he looked to them for the fare. The ladies themselves encouraged the coachman in this iniquitous idea, and seemed to enjoy it very much. But our oyster-eaters were not to be had in this way. They resisted. The abominable demand, the coachman persisted, the ladies laughed. The watch came up, and the oyster-eaters were hauled off to durance. Most unjustly, as to the blow on the belly, the decent stroke on the jaws, they denied all that sort of thing in toto. They were nevertheless held to bail for their appearance. At the sessions, and doubtless, should they ever be taken with an oyster-fit again, they will try to get it over earlier. Supping out. 
Messrs. Theodore Planque, a very tall gentleman, Hugh Jackson, a very short one, and Robert Thomas Huff, neither tall nor short, but as it were between both, and a bamboo cane, almost as long and large as a little scaffold pole, were brought before the magistrates from the subterraneous saloons of St. Martin's Watch House, charged with dreadful doings among the Charlies. It appeared by the statements, pro and con, that the prisoners are very respectable people, and that on Friday night they went to sup with an unquestionably highly respectable tradesman in Long Acre. This supper was given on the occasion of his brother, who was a captain in the navy, having returned from a long and perilous voyage, and, of course, on such an extraordinary occasion, they drank deeper than ordinary. It is really surprising what a quantity of thirsty sentiments an occasion of this kind gives rise to. At last, the tall gentleman, or as one of the watchmen called him, the long one, was found stretched out at his length on the pavement before the door, completely done up. It was a Charlie who found him, and a very honest Charlie, too, as times go. But whilst he was endeavouring to gather him up, the short gentleman came behind and floored poor Charlie himself with the great bamboo above mentioned. He was soon up again, however, though, as he said, he never was floored by such a queer thing in his life before, nor half so cleanly. Once on his legs again, round went his rattle, and in half a dozen seconds up came a half a dozen of his brethren. The short gentleman, with his bamboo, seeing this, laid about him justly ribs canisters or lanterns it was all one to him but who can control his fate or what can one single arm do against a dozen he was bundled up or enveloped as it were in a posse of charlies all in full tog enough to smother up a hercules and after some little ineffectual sprunting he and the long one and the middle-sized one and the great bamboo were all safely lodged in the watch-house where the long one having shaken off his drunken slumbers committed divers outrageous assaults upon the night constable and his men as they were putting them down into the cellars in their defence before the magistrate they admitted the drunkenness but denied the violence and begged his worship to believe that it was entirely a case of simple intoxication the magistrate ordered the long one to find bail upon four distinct assaults, the short one to find bail upon two distinct assaults, and the middle-sized one was discharged on pavement of his fees. A Great Man in Distress A personage, who described himself as General Sarsfield Lucan, Viscount Kilmalock in Ireland, a peer of France, and a descendant of Charles Mang presented himself before the magistrates to solicit a few shillings to enable him to proceed on important business to Wexford. General Sarsfield Lucan wore an old brown surtout with the collar turned up behind to keep his neck warm, and a scrap of dirty white ribbon fastened to one of the buttonholes, a black velvet waistcoat powdered with tarnished silver fleur-de-lis, and an ancient well-worn chapeau bras surmounted with a fringe of black feathers he carried under his arm a large roll of writings and all his pockets were stuffed with tin cases 
pocket-books, and bundles of papers. His fell of hair was ruefully matted. An enormous tawny whisker covered either cheek and his upper lip and chin, which, for want of shaving, showed like a stubble-field at harvest-home, was all begrimed with real scotch. He said he was a native of Wexford in Ireland, and had spent the last seven years in Paris, where his cousin, Louis the Eighteenth, nominated him a peer, and gave him a decoration, the bit of white ribbon above mentioned. But his installment had been postponed by the then recent change in the ministry, his cousin Louis the Eighth, assuring him that as soon as his present minister were kicked out he should come in in the meantime his father had died and willed him certain lands and houses in wexford whereupon he wrote to his sisters who were resident there to desire them to send him the proceeds of his estates forthwith but instead of so doing they had themselves administered to the will and were dissipating his patrimony under these circumstances, his cousin, the king, advised him to set out immediately for Ireland and seek redress in person. Journeying with this intent, he landed at Dover a few days before, but on reaching London he found his finances exhausted, and he was now driven to the unpleasant necessity of applying to their worships for a few shillings to enable him to proceed. Sir R. Burney said he wondered his royal cousin had not furnished him with the means of prosecuting his journey. Sir, I scorn to trouble him at all on such a palthory subject as money, replied the general, with some warmth, and he then went on to state, that in order to satisfy his coach hire from Dover to London, he had been necessitated to give up possession of his working tools. Your working tools, said the magistrate, and pray may I ask, what trade your lordship follows? No trade in the world at all, replied the general. I am not the person to be after following trades. The tools I am spaking about are what I used in some of the greatest inventions the world ever saw. I invented a apparatus for extracting stone and gravel from the blather without any operation at all. I invented a machine for fishing up vessels foundered at sea as easy as fishing up an oyster and I invented another machine for making accouchment the most acy thing in existence, a mere flabite to the most tender lady imaginable. And it was partly these inventions, indeed, that brought me to this country now, because I did not choose to be giving foreigners the benefit of them. Pray, sir, said Mr. Meinschel, will you give me leave to ask whether you were ever confined? The general. Confined? For what would I be confined? Mr. Minchel. If you do not understand the nature of my question, I am sorry I put it, but it certainly appeared to me possible that... The General. Sir, you appear to me to be after talking in a very queer kind of way to a gentleman. You ought to know what is due to respectable and great man, even though he is in distress. Mr. Minchel. Well, sir... I will speak as plainly to you as you do to me. It is my opinion, and the opinion, I believe, of every person present, that you are out of your mind, and that if you have never been confined, it is high time you were so. 
the general angrily declared he was altogether mensana in corporate sano and professed himself astonished that anybody should entertain a contrary opinion then taking from his side pocket a round tin case nearly as large as a demi culverin he offered to produce from it documents to show that he was really the important personage he professed himself to be the magistrates however had no faith in the matter they told him it might be all very true but they had no funds to assist him with and as he appeared very incredulous on his subject they at length ordered him to withdraw upon pain of being committed to prison under the vagrant act this was an awful alternative which the gallant general did not think proper to risk so gathering up his patents and papers he put his feather-fringed chapeau upon his head taking an ample pinch of snuff so ample indeed that it rushed through his olfactory labyrinth with the noise of a mighty cataract he stalked majestically out of the office muttering anathemas as he went mrs williams petticoat this was a proceeding under the pawnbroker's act by which mrs priscilla williams sought to recover a compensation in damages for the loss of certain property pledged with a mr simmons mrs priscilla williams is a bouncing buxom belle of five-and-thirty or thereabouts who having occasion to raise the sum of eighteen pence on some sudden emergency was fain to carry her best black bombasine petticoat or bumbycine petticoat as she called it to mr simmons of seven dials a diminutive elder who gathereth profit unto himself daily by lending to the poor in common parlance a pawnbroker or poetically speaking my uncle this mr simmons received the petticoat held it up to the light observed that it might well be called a bumbycine petticoat for the moths had riddled it sadly and finally he lent the money required but when she applied to redeem the petticoat he told her it was lost and refused to make her any compensation for it mr simmons in his defence admitted having received the petticoat and also having lost it but he declared mrs priscilla williams had deluged him with abominable abuse and he humbly submitted that the said abuse ought to go as a set-off against the lost petticoat mrs priscilla williams protested against any such settlement as that she readily admitted having blown mr simmons up a bit and she thought he richly deserved it for he blanked her and her petticoat too in the most notoriousest way imaginable i shouldn't have minded his blank me she added because it couldn't hurt me but i thought it extremely ongen tail in him to blank my petticoat the magistrate ordered that mr simmons should pay the value of the petticoat with full costs of suit End of section five